Hello, my name is Brian, and I'm a grumbler. <laughs> Good. Was it not scripted? If there was such a group like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, for grumblers, that is how I would introduce myself. If there were a Grumblers Anonymous, would you be a member? Do you have a grumbling problem? I mean, if we're going to be honest, we all struggle to some extent with grumbling. Well, you ask why this subject on the Sunday before Thanksgiving? Well, because grumbling and gratitude cannot coexist. Grumbling and gratitude cannot coexist. And on the other side of Thanksgiving, as we move into the Christmas season, what ought to be cause for great rejoicing often becomes a season for grumbling. Let's be proactive this year, and let's rise above the joy robbers to be thankful people in all things. It's been said this way, Thanksgiving is almost synonymous for the Christian life. It is the response of gratitude to God's saving activity and creation and redemption, and thus a recognition that he is the ultimate source of every blessing. We sang it earlier, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Is giving thanks to our blessing giver becoming more and more a regular thing in our lives? Or do you need to admit that you're a grumbler, and need his help to tune into his grace? Is our focus on what we have or what we don't have? At a certain popular resort, there are some hot springs and some cold springs side by side. Local people had been known to wash their clothes in the hot spring and then rinse their clothes in the cold spring. A tourist watching the procedure said to one of the natives going through this, how wonderful of nature to supply these springs. Not so wonderful, said the native. You may have noticed there's no soap. (laughs) Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? That what we see first is what is missing and, and not what we have. Reminds me of a lady grandson who's playing in the water, and she's standing on the beach not wanting to get her feet wet, when all of a sudden, a huge wave appears from nowhere and crashes directly over the spot where the boy was waiting. The water recedes, and the boy is no longer there. He simply vanished. She holds her hands to the sky and cries out, Lord, how could you? Have I not been a wonderful mother and grandmother? Please give my grandson back. And just then, another huge wave appears out of nowhere and crashes on the beach. And as the water recedes, there's the boy, unharmed, standing there, smiling, splashing around as if nothing had happened. The grandmother looks up to heaven and says, Lord, he had a hat too. (laughs) Amazing. It's amazing that what we see first is what is missing and not what we have. That brings us to our scripture passage for this morning. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. 
It's the beginning of that chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning in verse 1 through 16, really. So Matthew chapter 20, and if you're there, you'll notice perhaps at the top it has a little title of, of what this is about here. The NIV it calls it the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Workers in the vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but I need this sermon. And by the time we get to the end of this parable, we will see that there are some sour grapes in the vineyards. There are some grumblers. And whether you're familiar with this story or not, you're going to have a problem with how this story ends up. You see, our problem with this parable will not be that the language is difficult to understand. Our problem with this parable will not be because of any interpretive issues. The problem we will have with this parable is, well, we'll see this in a moment. Let me read the first verse to kind of set it all up. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Follow along with me, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. Now, Jesus here uh, is telling this story, and he uses the setting of a typical day in the marketplace. It was very common for men to gather at the local labor pool, hoping to find work for the day. No work, perhaps no food for the family. And so the landowner goes to the marketplace to hire a few good men, men in need of work. And the setting is very conventional, nothing out of the ordinary here. Now, the beautiful thing about parables is that Jesus performs heart surgery on us without our knowing it. That's what he does. There's no exception here. And as we make our way down through this parable, I want to make a couple of observations and then three questions that get to the heart of the problem. So first, a couple of observations, and then we'll look at the three questions that kind of move to our application. They get to the heart of the problem. Observation number one is this. Some men in need were given the opportunity to work. Some men in need were given the opportunity to work. That's observation number one. Look at verse two. He, the landowner, agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into this vineyard. The story begins with the hiring of some men at the beginning of the day, likely 6 a.m. These men standing in the marketplace have no job and no prospects of getting a job until this landowner comes along. Now, it isn't as if they have a job and the landowner offers them a better job with a bigger paycheck. No, they have no job. Perhaps have very little money. Maybe even diminishing hope that they'll even work this day. These men were chosen among many to work for this landowner. And they must have been thrilled to have found work. The landowner agreed to pay these workers a denarius, which was a normal wage for a day laborer. It is a fair amount for their services. File that away. We are going to come back to that later. The agreement was made, he would pay them a denarius, and the men punched in at six, and they went to work. We're told in verse 3 that for some reason, the landowner hired some other men at 9 a.m. 
In this case, no agreement was worked out as to pay, but simply the landowner promised these workers, it says in verse 4, I will pay you whatever is right. They're asked to trust in the landowner's sense of fairness. And as the story goes, the middle of verse 5, some more men were then hired at noon, and some others were hired at 3 p.m. Not sure why they were, there were several trips to the marketplace to hire more men, but perhaps the landowner underestimated the amount of work to be done. I have another suspicion, another idea on this. Unless I miss my guess, I think the landowner returns to hire more men throughout the day out of the kindness of his heart. That's what I think. They had a need, and his generosity, he met this need by providing them with work. 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. Hang on, it's one more. And God still goes to the marketplace of life, looking to meet the need of individuals looking to call men and women, young and old, to service in the vineyards. Even in the 11th hour, it is not too late to serve the Lord. Verse 6. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyards. One hour before quitting time, the landowner hires some more men. They were hired to work one hour. And they might have figured they're going to get a small amount of money for working only one hour. And they really couldn't even be sure of that. First observation is that some men in need were given the opportunity to work. Second observation, and this is where the story gets real interesting. The second observation is this. In the realm of economics and fair compensation, the landowner's actions don't add up. Let me give that to you again. In the realm of economics and fair compensation, the landowner's actions don't add up. A conventional plot ends with what is totally unconventional. Everything seems to be going along just fine until payroll time. You see, our problem with this parable, well, hang on to that. We'll we'll get to it in a minute. Let's look at the twist in the story. Let's look at the twist in the story. Actually, there are a couple of surprises in the story. The first one's found in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The landowner obviously has no idea how to run a business. These guys have been working all day, and one group has been working only one hour, and he decides to let the one-hour one get their pay first. What did he figure he was going to do to the morale? This isn't how you keep employees happy by pulling stunts like this. Last hired, first paid. Jesus is already messing with them right here. He's making a point. This last first principle is what prompted Jesus to tell this story in the first place. 
I want you to notice with me the bigger context of this, of this story. Go, go to chapter 19, verse 27. Verse 27 of Matthew 19. This is the bigger context. We need to grab this. Look at verse 27. Peter um, answered him, We have left everything to follow you, Jesus. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Can you believe that Peter would ask this? See, the good thing with having a Peter around is that he'll ask the question you were thinking. (laughs) And you guys just shake your head and go, Peter, 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 you're going to get zapped with this one. Glad I wasn't, didn't ask that question. And Jesus answers Peter, doesn't really rebuke him. Verse 28, he says, I tell you the truth, that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and then will inherit eternal life. In other words, God will give us beyond what we can imagine. The question is, can we trust him with that? Can we trust him with that? I heard about this missionary couple who had spent their whole life on the mission field and were returning home on a ship where the majority of the people on the ship were drinking and gambling and caring about. And the ship landed at the gangplank and that went down, the, the band that was there greeting them, uh, uh, greeting everybody on the ship began to play, and there were signs all over the place of welcome home. The wife thought it was a group of people there to welcome them for years of service they had spent among tribal people, sacrificing their very lives to the Lord. Instead, it wasn't for them at all. It was for the group that was with them on the ship who had been drinking and gambling. The wife said, this isn't fair. But the husband wisely said, honey, honey, we aren't home yet. We aren't home yet. And Jesus adds, verse 30, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And all this time, I thought that verse applied to potluck dinners when it was time to eat. (laughs) That's when it was quoted the most. Now, notice that the same words are spoken at the end of this parable. Matthew 20, verse 16. I want you to notice this. Verse 16 of Matthew 20. This is the end of the parable. Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Two statements serve as bookends to this parable. It becomes very clear as to why the last were paid first. I mean, think about this. If he had only paid those who had been there the longest first, they would have taken their pay, they would have gone home content that they put in a full day's work and got their rightful pay. It is all reversed, and the last ones hired are the first ones paid. That's the first twist in the story. But as we come to the next surprise, we come to a second one here. The landowner does something else that's very unusual, and this is the real kicker. Verse 19, uh, excuse me, verse 9, verse 9 of Matthew 20. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. 
Now, these guys who worked from sunrise to sunset are watching this thing unfold in front of their eyes. They see the 11th hour workers, one who worked one hour getting a Daenerys. They must have been thinking, whoa, if he's paying a Daenerys for one hour, what's it going to be for us? I mean, if you, you do the math, guys, and you do the fairness thing, everyone must be treated the same. It adds up to 12 denarii for 12 hours of work. Whoa, this is a good day. The landowner introduces us to a new math. Verse 10 says, So when those came who were hired first, they expected, they expected, underline, circle, mark that, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received the denarius. Who does this? Who pays 12-hour workers and one-hour workers the same amounts? Now, at this point in the story, be honest. Who are you identifying with the most? See, our problem with this parable is starting to work on us a little. The landowner stirs up a bit of scandal here because those who had had worked in the heat of the sun for 11 to 12 hours would see that, that these loafers who didn't work nearly as hard as they did are getting the same pay. And this is at the heart of their complaint. Look at verse 11. When they, the 12-hour workers, received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have, been, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. <laughs> Wait till the union hears about this. <laughs> oh, it's all wrong. Get to it. And in unison, we would all cry out, that's not fair. What employer in his right mind would pay the same amount for one hour's work as for 12? I mean, the problem isn't that these latecomers got paid. I suppose the problem isn't, I mean, I, I, I could live with it if the boss wanted to give those guys a denarius, but this That's not fair. As the grandson says to his grandpa, who's reading the story of the princess bride. Hold it, hold it, grandpa, you read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck, she marries Wesley. I'm sure, sure of it. After all he did for her, if she didn't marry him, it wouldn't be fair. And the grandpa says to his grandson, whoa, who says life is fair? Where's that written? Well, apparently many are writing about it. Uh, This week I did a web search for the simple phrase, when life's not fair, and the search yielded a staggering 11.8 million results. Forget about that. I'm not going to read those. It's not fair. We ask our kids to turn off the music they aren't supposed to be listening to. We give them a curfew. When the helpings are maybe smaller than the night before, when bedtime is earlier than usual, when we won't let them do what they had their hearts set on doing and all their friends are doing it, we hear, it's not fair. And fortunately, we grow out of that, right? Get adults. We don't say it anymore. 
not out loud. I mean, what goes through our minds when that person cuts in front of us when we've been standing there for so long? Or that salesman did a little bait and switch and or, or we were overcharged for something, or we're not given that job and we are more qualified. What goes through our minds when we work and someone else gets the credit? Or we work harder than everybody else and, and, and they all get equal credit. Who says life is fair? Where's that written? And that's not to say we're never to speak out against injustices in the world. There is a place for that, but that's just not the point for this morning. In the realm of economics and fair compensation, the landowner's actions don't add up. And here lies part of the problem. If we were honest, we consider ourselves to be 12-hour workers. I'm conscientious, disciplined, I'm hardworking, and deep down at times, we believe we deserve a little. This is exactly why Jesus told this story. He knew we would instinctively root for the wrong side. And we do that because we see ourselves as the first men hired. This parable does this heart surgery on us. It probes to our motives. Why do we do what we do? Is it in comparison to someone else or is it for the Lord's? Now, there are three questions in this parable that say a lot about our hearts, move us to our application this morning. So follow along as I read verse 13 as we come to our first question. Verse 13, but he, the landowner, answered one of them, one of those who were grumbling, who worked the the long shift. He answered them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Question number one, straightforward. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? These workers who work from the crack of dawn grumble because the landowner gave the same amount to the latecomers. But didn't they agree with the landowner to work for a denarius? Verse 2 tells us, yes, they did. Isn't that how it often goes in our life, though? We are content until what? We compare. We compare. The problem of comparison. I mean, I wouldn't be so unhappy with what I have except I see others having more. I wouldn't be so unhappy with a new car that I just drove out of the lot except that my friend just drove in with a nicer one. I wouldn't be so unhappy with, with this TV or, or this computer or this iPhone. Or, or I wouldn't be so unhappy with this set of kids. <laughs> <laughs> Except that the family over there seems to be having everything going right with their kids. Kids are saying, oh, can I read more, please? Will you let me? I go, Whoa, I can't even get my kid to open a book. What happens when we start comparing? We lose all focus and we begin to what? Grumble. Our eyes need to be on the Lord of the vineyards. Listen, stop being the blessing police. Oh, come you're doing better than me. Why is it you can afford that nice car? I work as hard as you do. My money had to go to braces for the kids. 
I mean, how is it that you can go on this exotic vacation or any vacation at all? Blessing police. And God turns to you, and God turns to me, and he says, have I been faithful to you? Haven't I given you what I promised? If God didn't do another thing for us, has he done enough? What is it that deflates gratitude? What is it that qualifies us for Grumblers Anonymous? I want to take you back to verse 10. Verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected, they expected to receive more. What went wrong for them? What is it that goes wrong for us? One word, expect. Expectations. If I were to write a book, and I really have little desire to do so, or the time. But if I were to write a book, it would be on this matter of expectations. Because I believe it is the very thing that's sucking the life out of the church today. I believe it is the very thing that's sucking the life out of Christian workers in the church today, as they've just done something marvelous, and we go, yeah, I know, but couldn't you have done this instead? Well, you know what you forgot to do? They go, oh, forget it. Why do I even serve? The thing that's putting an extra strain on marriages, the thing that's driving wedges in relationships, one word, expectations. We expect something to happen in a certain way. When it doesn't, we miss the blessing. We focus on what went wrong. Am I close? So we move through life with one disappointment followed by another. You see, expectations give birth to resentment. I'm not saying we never have them, but we better hold on to them loosely because most of them are out of your control. So I ask, I've asked myself, I told you I needed this sermon. I ask you, what are the links of expectation on your chain of disappointments? What are the links of expectation on your chain of disappointments. We need to get a handle on that. See, we can either see life as a series of disappointments or that all is a, is a gift. All, all is of God's grace. Matthew Henry, a preacher, writer. One time he was, he was robbed. Now, how can you possibly give thanks to God when you've been robbed? Well, that night, Matthew Henry wrote in his diary, He said, well, first of all, let me be thankful because I was never robbed before. (laughs) Secondly, secondly, I'm thankful because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Thirdly, I'm thankful because although they took my all, it wasn't very much. (laughs) And then fourth, he said, I'm thankful because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. What a perspective. How are we seeing things as they happen to us? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Didn't you get what I promised? Question number two. I need to move on. Verse 14. Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Question number two. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? In other words, is God in debt to anyone? 
Here's our major problem in this parable. What is done here is counterintuitive. What is done here is counterintuitive. In the world, a person should get paid in proportion to his work. In the world, people ought to get what they deserve. They get what they pay for. And God comes along and he turns it all upside down. And quite frankly, we have a problem with that at times. Oh, not when it's given to us, but others. It's been said this way. God introduces the new math of grace with twists and turns no one expects. Because God's kingdom runs on what? It runs on grace. The world of ungrace is at odd with God's world of grace. What are these 12-hour workers grumbling about? They are grumbling against against grace. And so we have sour grapes in the vineyards. This is how our thinking goes. I've been a pretty good follower. I've been a decent dad or mom. I've given a lot to this ministry. I've sacrificed my time. I've worked hard around here. I've given 20, 30, 40 years to this church. I've helped build this church. I've done this and I've done that in working for God. And I think I'd like to put it in order now. Won't say it out loud. That's our thinking. Here's my order. We really begin to to get this deserving mentality, and so we grumble rather than show gratitude. A spirit of entitlement is poisonous to your spiritual health. Listen, God owes us nothing. Bold letters on the back of a beautiful million-dollar yacht was the title of their boat. It's one word, the word deserved. Really? Really? John MacArthur put it this way. He said, the charge of unfairness was not grounded in the love for justice, but in the selfish assumption that the extra pay they wanted was pay they deserved. Isn't that the real issue? Isn't it all about what we think we deserve? Try this. How about we pray, Lord, give me for once what I deserve. I don't want to pray that. What undeserved blessing has God given you? Now, you need a longer memory than just this past week or past month. The next time you're about to grumble, pause first and thank God for your blessings. Question number three. Question number three. I need to hit this one. The last question that really probes here. Remember, the landowner in the story has an abundance of money, and he has the resources to hire many workers. And at the end of verse 15, he asks this question, are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? Or another translation has it, do you begrudge my generosity? It isn't about the denarius. It isn't about working a 12-hour day or one hour, really. It is about a heart that struggles with the grace and generosity of God. Our problem's not with our fellow workers whom we envy. Our problem is with God. Are you envious, the owner said, because I am generous? You see, grumbling is a symptom. The deeper problem is envy. But more than that, underneath the envy is an even deeper issue. We've got a problem with God. We're angry with God because we think he's treating someone else better than he is us. Well, he's letting him off the hook. Wasn't it God's kindness and grace in the first place to even include you on his team? Did the landowner 
have to hire these guys who were desperate for work at the beginning of the day? Did he have to? Was he under any obligation? Wasn't it his kindness to begin with? And when he did include us in his work, weren't we thrilled to be a part of it? I mean, we get to serve in God's vineyard. We get to. That God chooses any one of us for his vineyard is grace. And God dispenses his blessing as he, blessings as he sees fit. Are you thankful for what God has given you? Brian, are you thankful for what God has given you? Can I even see it? Or have you become sour grapes in the vineyards? How can we move from grumbling to gratitude? Well, that's going to depend on how we will choose to see things around us, how we will interpret what happens to us. See, we either go through life wearing the glasses of fairness or the glasses of grace. One or the other. Fairness, grace. These 12-hour workers had put on the glasses of fairness. So all they could see was what they were given last place when they felt they deserved first. They could not see any blessings. Oh, but if they put on the glasses of grace, they would see that they deserved last place. And without the kindness of the landowner, they would not have had a job at all. The one they're angry at is the one, same one who hired them in the first place. That's the lenses. Of grace. And if these 6 a.m. workers put on the glasses of grace rather than the glasses of fairness, they would have said, thank God I have a job today. Thank God he chose me to serve in his vineyards. The question is, what glasses are you wearing? You put on the fairness glasses and you see wages. You put on the grace glasses and you see rewards. You put on fairness glasses and you see this equation. I do A, then you must do B. Grace glasses, I'm going to do A and I'm going to trust God with the results. So you cannot put grace in some mathematical uh, equation. And so when you get up tomorrow morning, Brian, when you get up tomorrow morning, what is it going to be? The glasses of fairness or the glasses of grace? And I suggest we put on the glasses of, of grace Every single day. Choose to put the glasses on all the time. And walk around with those on. Because what's going to turn our grumbling into gratitude? Putting on the glasses of grace. You say, but pastor, I got a lot of reason to grumble. If you only knew what I'm going through. I got a lot of reason to grumble. Reminded of the true story. The writer Bob Pierce speaks about. Bob Pierce visited a home of lepers in Korea. And he and the chief surgeon walked through this home of lepers. They passed through rooms of lepers, each room getting progressively worse as they made their way to the back of the building. They finally came to the room in the back. There they found the worst patient of all. Their eyes landed on a Korean man. He had lost all of his toes and all of his fingers. He could no longer stand. He could no longer walk. He couldn't even sit up. He could not speak for he had lost his tongue to leprosy. He could not see. He could not hear. All of his teeth had fallen out. He could do only one thing. He could feel. 
And so as these two young men, as these two men entered his room, he could feel the vibrations. And at one time, just prior to being in this miserable condition, he had given his life to Christ, and he wanted to share his newfound faith and joy with others. He wanted to give thanks to God. Now listen, he could not speak, he could not stand, he could not see, he could not hear, he could not walk. We might say, here is a man who had a reason to grumble. And as the vibrations were felt, this Korean man lifted himself up on one elbow on his bed. And he pointed to the heavens with his fingerless hand, with, with, his, with a grin, with a toothless grin. And he went with a big smile, giving thanks to God. He had nothing. He had nothing. He wanted to give witness to the Lord. And I wonder, as I someday stand before my Lord, having gone through this life discontent and grumbling, that this Korean man might be standing right next to me. Charles Spurgeon wrote, In heaven we shall give thanks to God always for all things, without exception. And throughout eternity we shall magnify his holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, thanking him now is just a warm-up for heaven. We should be growing continually in this grace of giving thanks to the Lord, even if it means getting on our elbow with fingerless hand and going, thank you, God. Let's pray. Lord, I needed this, and I can only trust that I'm not the only one in the room. Help me, help us to move from grumbling to gratitude. To see what we have rather than what we don't have. To thank you for the life you've given us. To be thankful people. Like this leper, all those that go by can see us thanking you, giving witness to you, giving praise to you. Oh, but then they would ask, what is it? Why do you have this hope? Why are you thanking God when you're in that miserable condition? It would have reason to give this person or individuals for that hope that lies within us, that relationship we have with you, and that we were saved by this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Thank you. Thank you for that amazing grace. May we go in that grace this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.